thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Well, in Acts chapter 3, we saw Peter as a great example of two very important things. First, Peter was an example of how to respond to people who are in need. Uh, We saw Peter and John, they're there going to the temple, and they see this lame man begging, and and they come to him, and, you know, he's expecting money, and they say, you know, we don't have any money, but what we do have, we give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And Peter lifts this man, and the Lord heals him. And, And we noted four specific ways in which we should respond to people in need because of the example that we saw with Peter. And the second example we saw from Peter uh, was after that, there was a huge crowd that came and, and we saw, you know, how to respond when people see the work that God does through you. These people see a miraculous work of God through Peter and, and Peter humbly points them to Jesus and says, hey, don't look at me as, as this was done by me. It was Jesus who did this. And then he shares the gospel and he tells them of their need to repent. And we noted five ways because of that how we should respond to people who see God work through us. Well, now as we come to chapter 4, we're going to see another great example in the life of Peter. You see, the crowd that saw Peter heal this lame man, the crowd that heard Peter preach the gospel, in that crowd there were the religious leaders, the same religious leaders that just months earlier crucified Jesus. And as you can imagine, they're upset by Peter's Peter's message that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is healing people. And so they're going to try to stop Peter and stop John from preaching about Jesus. But once again, we're going to see a great example from Peter. And this time, an example of how to respond to people who were hostile to Jesus and to his followers. And I think, you know, this is something that's very relevant to us today. Because in our culture today, we are becoming more and more hostile to Jesus and more and more hostile to the Bible, more and more hostile to those who follow Jesus. And so, you know, our culture is going farther and farther from what the Bible says, and it's becoming mean more and more hostile to those who hold to it, to those who stand for it, to those who proclaim Christ. And so, you know, I think we're starting to see more and more of that in our culture. And so what we see with Peter and John and how they respond to the religious leaders who are hostile to Jesus and hostile to them, I think is a great challenge for us this morning. And so as we look at this, I hope that we can understand it and also apply it. And so from this example of Peter, we're going to see three specific ways that we should respond to people who are hostile to Jesus and hostile to us, his followers. So let's start by looking at how the religious leaders respond to the healing of this lame man and the gospel that Peter preached because we ended chapter 3 with that. We now come to chapter 4 and we're going to see the response of these religious leaders to that starting in verse 1. It says this, now as they spoke to the people, The priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they thought the people and priests in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. 
So Peter and John, they, they, Peter just got done preaching you know, the gospel and this crowd is there. And as they're interacting with this crowd, a group comes to them. We're told that the group consisted of the priest, the captain of the guard, and the Sadducees. Now, the captain of the guard was ultimately in charge of the temple police. Uh, there was, you know, obviously groups of people there uh, that the Jews had, especially if a Gentile would ever dare to walk where they weren't supposed to be. But so there was always this temple police there. And so the Sadducees and the priests, they grab the temple police and they go and they get Peter and John. And verse 2 gives us the reason why they do this. We're told, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So these religious leaders, they're greatly disturbed that Peter and John are proclaiming that Jesus healed this lame man and proclaiming that Jesus is now risen and alive and well. And you could understand why this would greatly disturb them. As we saw in the Gospel of Luke, the religious leaders, they hated Jesus. And we noted in Luke there was three main reasons why they had such animosity towards Jesus. The first reason that they hated Jesus is because Jesus revealed their hypocrisy. You see, these religious leaders, they wanted to look so spiritual. They wanted to look like they had it all together. But Jesus showed, actually, outwardly, you want people to see that you're spiritual. But inwardly, you're about as far from God as you can be. The second reason they hated Jesus was because of jealousy. Jesus could do miracles that they couldn't. Jesus taught with authority that they didn't have. And the crowds flocked to Jesus and they followed Jesus. And so these religious leaders who had all this popularity and all the people following them, these people are now following Jesus, listening to Jesus and all of Jesus. And they were jealous of Jesus. That was another reason they had an issue with him. But probably the biggest issue of all is the fact that Jesus claimed to be God. He claims to be their Messiah, and they did not believe that he was, and ultimately the result of that was that they crucified him on a cross. Now, the religious leaders were made up of two main groups, the Pharisees, which we saw a lot in the gospel, but also the Sadducees. And I want you to note now, Luke's sharing with us here in Acts, he tells us the priests and the Sadducees were the group that came over to arrest Peter and John. The two main differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were the religious leaders of the day, was mainly a doctrinal difference. You see, Sadducees, they didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in miracles, and they definitely didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. And so the message that's being proclaimed would get them way more upset than the Pharisees, because not only are they claiming that Jesus did this miracle, but they're claiming that Jesus was risen from the dead, and the Sadducees didn't believe that that was possible. They didn't buy into that. And so, obviously, they hear this message, and they're not pleased at all. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment, because we saw the huge problem that they had with Jesus, and I'm sure that they finally thought, you know what, the Jesus problem is dead and gone, literally. We've took care of him. We've crucified him. It's over with. We don't have to worry about, you know, the crowds following him. We don't have to worry about his miracles, his teaching. You know, everything's going to get back to the way it was, because we took care of the Jesus problem. And now you have two of Jesus' followers Seeing someone get healed, they're like, whoa, and then proclaiming Jesus as risen from the dead. And so these guys are upset, to say the least. And the greatest thing that would disturb them is that in the preaching of the gospel, Peter tells them, Jesus is God. He's the Messiah that you crucified and killed. You killed the Messiah. Peter proclaims that in the end of chapter 3. 
So this miracle done through Peter and the gospel message that he preached brought the Jesus problem right back to these religious leaders. So to say that they were greatly disturbed is probably an understatement. You know, this is the last thing that they ever wanted to see happen. They thought they were done with the Jesus problem, but now it's just grown. So the religious leaders, they're disturbed at Peter and John for what they did, for what they're proclaiming. And verse 3 says, and they laid hands on them. And this isn't like we talk about in Christian circles. Oh, let me lay hands and pray. They laid hands on them to physically do harm to them. And they put them in custody for it was already evening. The religious leaders, they arrest Peter and John, they put him in custody, they put him in prison, and we're told because it was already evening. Now, I mentioned this in Jesus' trial. According to Jewish law, you couldn't have a trial at night, and that's why Jesus' trial was illegal. Uh, so they say, you know what, we're going to put you in prison for the night, and then we're going to put you in trial in the morning. Now, verse 4 reveals the effect that the gospel message had on the crowd there who heard Peter proclaim it. Notice what verse 4 says. However... Many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So Luke tells us of the opposition that comes against Peter and John after they proclaim the message of the gospel, but he also doesn't want us to lose sight of the fact that the gospel message has gone out and has made a huge impact on those that heard. Despite the opposition that came against Peter and John, we're told that the number of men who believe now has come to the number of five. If you remember the first time in Acts chapter 2 that Peter preaches the gospel, we're told 3,000 people get saved. Well, now Luke tells us there's 5,000 men who are believers. Now, this is something that we also see in the Gospels when Jesus feeds the 5,000. It's 5,000 men. They didn't actually record the fact that there was also women and children. So at this point in time, with 5,000 men, if you include women and children, it could very likely be fifteen to 20,000 people that the early church now has. So it is growing really quickly, and the Lord is moving in people's lives, and they're coming to a knowledge and accepting Christ. And so Peter and John, they're put into prison for the night by the religious leaders. And now we're going to see how their trial goes in the morning. Notice what verses 5 through 7 tells us. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many were of the high priest's family, were gathered together at Jerusalem. But when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? So Peter and John have just spent all night in a prison cell, and now it's the next day, and the religious leaders come to put them on trial. And I want you to note, Luke gives very specific details of who is at this trial. Notice the names. It'll probably be familiar from the Gospel of Luke. We have the rulers, the elders, and scribes, but as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many were of the family of the high priest. If you remember from the Gospel of Luke, these are the same people who put Jesus on trial. These are the same people who had Jesus crucified. These are the same people who knew that there was nothing wrong, that Jesus didn't do anything deserving of death, but still committed, uh, convicted him of something that would put him to death. And I want you to try to put yourself in the situation that Peter and John find themselves in. Because just think about this, a few months earlier, they were aware of the fact that the same group of people tried Jesus. They watched that. Uh, They often, you know, they abandoned it, but but they, they knew what had transpired, and they recognized the outcome. This group put Jesus to death, even though he was innocent. And now you find yourself in the same position. 
You've been arrested by the same group, and you've done it in Jesus' name. You're claiming that Jesus is risen from the dead, and you recognize that this message is something that this group does not want to hear in any way, shape, or form. And I think the natural thing would be that you would be a little bit fearful that what they did to Jesus is now what they're going to do to you. You're on trial, and the likely result is they're going to have you killed or at least beaten or something horrible transpire. So here Peter and John are probably wondering if this is the end for them. If this is it, if they've been on trial now and this is it, they've had their opportunity to stand for the Lord, they proclaimed the gospel, people got saved, and now they're going to be put to death. I want you to think about something. If you knew that the people putting you on trial had the power and authority to kill you, how would that affect the way that you responded to them? You're standing in front of this group that you are very aware they have the power to take your life. How would you then respond to a group like that? I'm sure that for many there would be fear. For many there would be a lack of willingness to stand up for what you believe. For others perhaps a desire to please those people with what you say. But I want you to notice in the response that we see here from Peter, we don't see fear. We don't see him shying away from what he believes. We don't see him trying to say things that would make these religious leaders happy or or tell them what they want to hear. He tells them what they need to hear, even though they didn't want to hear it. We see a great boldness in Peter, a great willingness to stand up for the truth, regardless of how the religious leaders felt. Now, when Peter and John are brought before these religious leaders, the religious leaders ask them a question. And it's interesting because the question is, by what power or by what name have you done this? And the reason it's interesting is, if you remember from chapter 3, Peter's already made very clear, by the name of Jesus we do this. It's by Jesus' power we do this. So they already know the answer to this question. But this shouldn't surprise us because, you know what, Jesus over and over again in front of them said he was God. But on his trial, they say, are you God? Because ultimately, during the trial, they want this to be official. We're going to ask you the official thing so we can condemn you. Are you God? Yes, I am. All right, what need do we have for more witnesses? Let's kill him. Same thing here. By what power or by what name have you done this? They know the answer. They just want them to say Jesus so they can go around and turn and do something to them. Now, I'm sure that Peter and John are thinking, if we say Jesus, something bad is going to transpire. We're most likely going to be killed. We're most likely going to be beaten. And with that in mind, I want you to think about the response that Peter gives. Okay, he's on trial. He thinks probably his life could be taken. He knows if he responds with the truth that it's Jesus' name and Jesus' power, there should be fear. There should be lots of things that come upon him. But look at how he responds. It's a great example for us. Verses 8 through 12 says this. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel, but by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, who God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is a stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
Here in these verses, we see the first great example and response from Peter that's an example to us of how we should respond to those who are hostile to Jesus and hostile to his followers. Notice that Peter boldly proclaims the truth about Jesus to the hostile people who are putting him on trial. But also notice something very important. This boldness to proclaim the truth about Jesus, we're told, comes from the Holy Spirit. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, is now given this boldness to proclaim these truths. And I want us to remember something. We already noted that before being empowered with the Holy Spirit, Peter was not a bold man when it came to proclaiming Jesus. He denied Jesus three times when he had the opportunity to be bold for Jesus. He wasn't bold for Jesus, but on the day of Pentecost, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and the first response to that was being bold and proclaiming the gospel, and 3,000 people get saved. And then this crowd comes to him, and everything's going on, and once again, he's bold again after he heals this layman, and he gets another opportunity to boldly proclaim the gospel. And now we have the most hostile group yet, the religious leaders. And what do we see? The Holy Spirit empowering Peter once again to boldly stand up for Jesus and proclaim Jesus to this group. And I want you to note this because I think it's an encouragement to us. We have the same spirit dwelling in us as Peter did. And I think when we face a hostile crowd or a hostile world that we live in, we often think we're not going to have the capacity or the boldness to stand up for the truth, to stand up for Jesus. But realize Peter didn't have that in and of himself. It was something that the Spirit of God gave to him at that moment when he stood before those people who were hostile to Jesus, who were hostile to him. And Jesus will do that for us. The Spirit of God will do that for us. He will give us the boldness that we need when we face people who are hostile to him. Now, as we look at what Peter says, remember, he knows the truth that these religious leaders can kill him, but that does not stop him from proclaiming the truth about Jesus. The first thing that Peter says here shows that he's not intimidated at all. Notice what he says in verse 9. If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man. You know, Peter starts off by boldly showing that he and John shouldn't be on trial at all. If we this day are judged for doing something good, you know, Peter's realized, you know what, trials are for evil deeds. Are you really putting us on trial for healing a man? Is that really why we're standing before you right now because we healed someone? Is that why we're on trial? Peter recognizes the, the foolishness of this. We shouldn't even be on trial because we did something good. We didn't do anything evil. There's no reason that we should be standing here before you. So his logic is piercing to them. Peter starts off boldly showing that he and John shouldn't even be there. But he says, you know what? You want to know the answer to your question? By what power, by what name have we done this? Notice what Peter says. He doesn't pull any punches. Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. Notice the boldness here of Peter. He doesn't just say, well, we did this by Jesus and the power of his name, you know, kind of timid and quiet. And, you know, he says, I want everyone to know, all of Israel to know that it was Jesus whom you guys crucified, that God raised from the dead. It's through him that this man stands here before you healed. Notice that Peter doesn't shy away from the truth of who Jesus is. He doesn't shy away from the power that Jesus has and the fact that God has raised him from the dead. And most importantly, he doesn't shy away from telling these religious leaders of their own guilt and sin for crucifying 
Christ. Now, oftentimes when you see someone on trial and the judge or presiding people have the power to kill them or put them in the prison, they're very cautious with their words. They want to be careful with what they have to say, not to offend that person who has the power over their life. They try to make sure they don't say anything that would get that person mad. Well, that isn't Peter. He boldly tells the religious leaders something they desperately didn't want to hear. It's Jesus Christ who did this. And it's Jesus Christ whom you crucified, who you put to death. And that's not bold enough. Notice what Peter goes on to say in verse 11. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. This is very significant. Peter is now using the Old Testament scriptures to back up what he's saying to these religious leaders. Psalm 118 verse 22 is what Peter is quoting. And that quote is, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now, the religious leaders would have been very familiar with the picture that Peter is painting here. Because in in this time, he's speaking of the terminology from stone workers who built the temple. Now, they built things very different back then than we do today. They didn't use mortar or grout between bricks or stones. They took huge stones, and they would be in a stone quarry, and they would cut them just right, and then another stone cut perfectly to lay right on top of it so that it would fit perfectly together, and there would be nothing in between it, and they would build up the temple like that. And so Peter is using this kind of concept, but, but these stones were cut in this stone quarry, which was usually near a mountain where they would get the stones, which was a far distance from the temple. And so these stones had to be transported to wherever they were building the temple. So each stone is transported, and I want you to note the most important stone was called the chief cornerstone. And the reason this stone is so important is because everything rests upon it. You remove this stone, the whole building crumbles and falls. So this is, you know, the supporting stone. This is the most significant and important stone that there is. And so as these stones are being brought to the builders of the temple, they have to figure out which stone is which and put them together and and build this structure. And when Psalm 118 says, the stone which the builders has rejected has become the chief cornerstone, this is speaking about the builders missing this important piece. That, you know, they get this stone and they're thinking, what is this one? Where does this go? I don't know. And they ultimately just heap it out into the, you know, the heat pile, get rid of it because they don't realize it's significant. They reject it, not knowing what it is. And then when they get to the point of, hey, we need to put in the most important stone, they say, hey, where's the chief cornerstone? Oh, we sent that to you guys months ago. What are you talking about? We don't have it. And they have to realize, oh, we already got it and we rejected it and we now have to put it back where it belongs. You see, this psalm was prophetically speaking about the fact that Jesus, who is the chief cornerstone, who everything rests upon him, would be rejected by the Jews. And notice when Peter quotes this psalm, he makes very clear who the builders are who rejected the chief cornerstone. He says, this is a stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Peter is boldly saying this psalm is prophesying about the rejection of the Messiah, and it's actually prophesying about you guys who did it. He's using the Old Testament to show the reality of their sin and what they've done. And if that wasn't bold enough, what he says next is even bolder. Verse 12, now there is salvation, and nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now realize Peter is speaking to the religious leaders who believe 
Salvation comes through doing the works of the law. And because they're such great men and godly men and, and they do the works of the law, they're all saved. And Peter says, no, no, no. None of you guys are going to be saved unless you believe in Jesus. It's only through him that you can be saved. It's only through him and a belief in him that you can have salvation. Extremely bold to this group of people who, you know, obviously this is not the words that they want to hear, especially since they killed Jesus. But it's something that the Bible makes very clear. There is only one way to be saved from your sins, and that's through accepting Jesus. John 14, chapter six, uh, verse 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus clearly says he's the only way to God. He's the only way to be saved. He's the only way to have this relationship with the Father. Peter understood this vital truth about Jesus, and he boldly proclaims it to re- the religious leaders. So the first example we see from Peter of how to respond to people who are hostile to Jesus and his followers is to boldly proclaim the truth about Jesus and the Bible. This is something that's so important for us, boldly proclaiming the truth about Jesus and the Bible when hostile people come against us because we believe in Jesus. You know, personally, I get so saddened and frustrated by the lack of boldness many Christians, especially those who have positions like myself, who are pastors and leaders and ministries, who do not stand up boldly for the truth of the Bible, who do not stand up boldly for Jesus Christ. And I get saddened and frustrated by that. You know, constantly in the news, and and we're, we're reading of Christians who aren't willing to take a bold stand for what the Bible clearly teaches, who aren't willing to say what the Bible says. Hey, Jesus is the only way, true and life no one comes to the father except through him when the bible boldly declares something as sin as followers of jesus christ so should we when the bible boldly says there's only one way to heaven and that is through jesus christ so should we when the bible says there is a place called hell and you will go there if you reject christ so should we the reality is these truths are things that we as believers shouldn't shy away from we should boldly stand on them because that is what god's word tells us there are a lot of hostile people in this world towards jesus towards his followers who do not like what the bible says and unfortunately many people in the church because of that hostility are shying away from standing boldly and proclaiming the truths of the bible because people are hostile to it but we need to follow peter's example and boldly proclaim the truth not only about jesus but his word to this culture who is more and more growing hostile to those things So Peter has boldly proclaimed the truths about Jesus in the Bible to the religious leaders. And now I want you to note the response the religious leaders have to the boldness of what Peter has just said. Notice what happens in verses 13 and 14. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. When the religious leaders, they see the boldness of Peter and John, we're told that there's two responses that they have to this bold response of Peter to them. The first response is they marveled. You see, the religious leaders weren't used to people doing what Peter did. They're used to people fearing them. They're used to people kind of cowing towards them. And they're not used to people boldly proclaiming to them, you guys are sinners. Jesus is the only way. You need to believe in him. They marvel at the boldness of Peter and John. They also marvel at the fact that Peter and John were uneducated and untrained men. 
Peter and John weren't educated in the religious schools that these religious leaders were. Well, wait a second, Peter. How are you even bringing up this psalm? How do you even know the word of God? You're an uneducated and untrained man in religious things. Who are you to think you have the boldness to proclaim these things to us? They're marveling at this reality that these fishermen from Galilee actually have the audacity to stand boldly and proclaim these things. But you know, they also recognize another thing. Secondly, they respond by realizing Peter and John had been with Jesus. These Galilean fishermen who didn't have any formal religious education, they had spent time with Jesus, and the religious leaders note that. But but they've been with Jesus. You know, something I want to just throw out here, and I I think it's very important to understand, because I come across Christians who who miss this. You don't need a Bible college education or a seminary degree in order to be used by God, in order to be in ministry. The number one qualification for that is spend a lot of time with Jesus. You spend time with Jesus, and he will use you. You spend time with Jesus, and he will change you. You spend time with Jesus, and he will do things through you. Now, Bible college and seminaries are great in the sense that you get a devoted few years of your life to really growing in Jesus, but the point is growing in Jesus. And you can do that outside of those you know, types of religious schools as well. And so don't miss that reality that God can use you just like he did with these disciples. You know, They spent time with Jesus. That's what prepared them for the work that God had for them. And the same is true for you and me. If you regularly spend time with Jesus, he's going to use you. But you know what? One of the best things that the hostile world can see in us is that we spend time with Jesus. That they would recognize, you've been with Jesus. But you know what? There's no way this world is going to understand that we've been with Jesus unless we've been with Jesus. They're not going to see it unless we're spending time with him. And the way that they're going to see it is because of the change in our life. Because when you spend time with Jesus, you start to speak differently. You start to live differently. Your life becomes more like him. And that is why people recognize there's a change. There's something that's transpired in you. And you're now more like Jesus. They understand that. They see that. And that's one of the best things that this hostile world can recognize about us. Of Yes, we don't just talk about these things. We allow these things to actually change our life. We live them. We're bold for them. If someone were to examine your life today, would they conclude from how you speak and from how you act that you've been with Jesus? Would they be able to recognize that from looking at your life? Would that be clear? Would that be obvious? And I think the only way it's going to be clear and obvious is if we regularly spend time with Jesus. Now we're also told in verse 14, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. You see, these religious liars, well, that's probably a good thing, religious leaders, they they couldn't deny or say anything against this miracle because the reality is there's not only Peter and John standing before them on this trial. Here's the guy who's been crippled for 40 years, standing completely whole, completely well, completely healed. They can't deny it. So now the religious leaders are going to have to figure out what they're going to do. Let's see what they do. Verses 15 through 17. But when they had commanded them to go outside of the council, they confirmed among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that this spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So the religious leaders, they're not sure what to do. So they say, all right, Peter, James, Peter and John and layman who's now healed, get out of here. 
We're going to talk among ourselves. And notice what they say. Notice the first thing they declare. Indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through Peter and John is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. You know, this shows the huge corruption in the hearts of these religious leaders. They admit a miracle has transpired. We can't deny it's transpired. All of Jerusalem knows it transpired, but it doesn't change them. It doesn't move them. Yeah, we know that the miracles have been happening, but we don't care about that. All we care about is shutting these guys up from saying anything about Jesus. And that's why they go on to say, but so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they've come up with their solution. All right, we know something miraculous has happened, but so that they never do this again, we are going to severely threaten them. And this threat is going to be so severe that they'll never, ever preach in the name of Jesus again. So let's see what happens. Verse 18. So they called them and commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So the religious leaders, they bring Peter and John back into the room and they severely threaten them. They say, you will never preach or teach about Jesus again. And I want you now to notice the response. And also realize these aren't idle threats. They know the power that these men have. They recognize you crucified Jesus. We know that if you make severe threats to us, you can follow through. You can have us in prison for life. You can have us beaten. You can have us killed. They recognize these aren't idle threats from men. When they severely threaten you, there's something that comes to you, okay? And once again, I want you to put yourself in Peter and John's situation. You've been severely threatened. Most likely been told you'll be beaten, imprisoned, or killed if you preach in the name of Jesus ever again. How would you respond to such a threat? Would that threat intimidate you? Would that threat keep you from proclaiming the truth about Jesus? How would that threat cause you to respond? Well, once again, Peter and John are a great example of how to respond to people who are hostile to Jesus, people who are hostile to his followers, how to respond to people who try and stop us from proclaiming the truths of Jesus. I love this response. Notice what Peter says. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Peter and John realize your threats are real, they're severe, but let me just tell you guys this. We're not going to listen to you over God. Jesus told us to be witnesses of him to this world, to speak to people about him, and we are going to follow him and what he says over you and what you say. We know it's right in the sight of God to listen to him more than you, and that is exactly what we're going to do. So Peter and John are saying, you know, you can threaten us all you want. You can do what you want to us, but there's no way that we are going to stop doing what God says because you tell us to do something different. We're going to listen to God over listening to you. So here we see the second example from Peter and John of how to respond to people who are hostile to Jesus and his followers. We should respond by listening to and doing what God says, not what this world says. You know, when this world tells us to do something that goes against God, that goes against his word, we shouldn't listen to it. We shouldn't follow it. We shouldn't do it. We need to respond by listening to and doing what God says, not what this world says. Even if they threaten us with harm, 
even if they t- make a law that proclaims you, you can't preach the gospel, or you know, which probably will come in, in you know, our society at some point in time, but you know, even if they proclaim things and make laws that say we can't do what God says, we ultimately have to say, you know what? You can make a law, you can threaten us, you can do what you want, but when God says we're going to follow over what you say. We need to be more concerned about offending God than offending this world, and I'm so saddened by that shift in the Christian culture. It seems that many Christians are more concerned about offending the world than they are about offending God. And it's like, that's the one I want to be concerned about offending. He's the one who has power over eternal life. You know, I don't want to be offending him. I'll offend the world. If I'm standing up for Jesus, that's fine for me. We need to be more concerned about disobeying God than disobeying the world. Oh, well, what if we don't do what the world says? Look what they can do to us. Oh, what if we don't do what God says? That should be more concern for us, you know, disobeying him. We need to have more of a fear of God than a fear of this world. Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We need to be fearful of God, not fearful of this world and what they can do. And sadly, many Christians have abandoned what God says because the world tells them to, or the world threatens them, or the world has this influence over them, and it's unfortunate. But we need to follow the example that we see here from Peter and John and always be obedient to what God says. Listen to him. Do what he says. Follow him and not what this world says. Well, let's see how this trial ends in verse 21. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. After Peter and John say, we're not going to listen to you over God, the religious leaders, they threaten them once again, and then they let them go without doing anything to them. Now, I want you to note the reason why they let Peter and John go. They let them go because they could find no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. Notice the religious leaders aren't letting them go because they want to. They're not letting them go because they're trying to be kind. They're not letting them go because they think, oh, well, maybe you're not so guilty. They would love to do something horrible to Peter and John. The reason that they're letting them go is because they realize the people have seen a miracle and they're giving glory to God for it. And if we do something to Peter and John for this miracle, we got issues from the people. The only reason they're not doing something to Peter and John is because they're fearful of how the crowd will respond. And notice the contrast. Peter and John are fearful of God and obeying God. These religious leaders are fearful of the people and obeying the people. And so they're making decisions based on the crowd's response, not on based on what's right in the eyes of God, like Peter and John were doing. Well, Peter and John are now let go. Let's see what happens next. Verse 23. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God and with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David had said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through, your, through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After being let go, Peter and John come back to the group of believers, 
And they tell them what happened. They tell them of this, you know, healing. They tell them of, you know, going in front of this, this group and the trial that transpired. And, oh, they threatened us severely, but they let us go. And we stood for Jesus and we stood bold. And after that, the whole group prays. And I want to note a couple things about this prayer. First, their prayer starts by reminding themselves of who they're praying to. Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that's in them. You know, this is something that's so important. They start with a prayer that recognizes the power of God, that recognizes the authority of God. And this is great because when you're facing hostility or difficult circumstances, you want to know the God you're praying to has the ability and power to get you through those things. And they realize that. They're coming to a God, they're praying to a God, has power to help them overcome this hostile group. We've just been threatened. Our lives have been threatened. But you know what? We serve a God who's bigger than those threats, who is bigger than those things, who's bigger than those circumstances. And so that's a great thing for us as we pray. Start with a recognition of the God that you serve, the God who can get you through whatever circumstances that you're facing. Second, they prayed in light of the word of God. They're quoting Psalm 2, and Psalm 2 reveals that these things would transpire. David writes about this. There's going to come a time when this persecution was going to come. And so they realize, you know what? Your word revealed that to us. And so we're ready for it. We're prepared for these things. They came to understand and expect this sort of opposition and not be troubled by it because God's word revealed that. And this is another good example for how we should pray. We should pray in light of God's word. Let your circumstances be seen in light of God's word and what it says. Third, they prayed for the specific need that they had at the time. They'd just been severely threatened, and so they pray for boldness to speak about Jesus. And they needed it. You know, these were real men. I'm sure those threats, they sunk in. You know, as bold as they were, as they're going back, and Peter and John are walking in the crowd and thinking, oh my goodness, you know, if we do preach about Jesus again, we're done for. We need boldness to go out again. We need boldness to proclaim these things. As they share it with the other believers, and the other believers here, they told you they're going to do this to you? Hey, we need to pray for boldness that God would help us stand true and stand firm for Jesus. And look at their prayer. They say, Lord, look at their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Another wonderful example for us to pray that God would give us what we need as the hostile world around us comes against us. And when they finished praying, notice what happens in verse 31. And when they prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all once again filled with the Holy Spirit. And notice the result. They spoke the word of God with boldness. We see once again the Spirit of God empowering the believers to do what they needed to do to stand boldly for Jesus. So here we see the third example from Peter and the other believers of how to respond to people who are hostile to Jesus and his followers. We should respond by praying for those who are hostile and praying that God would give us what we need to deal with these hostile people. This is so important for us. Prayer is such an essential thing when we face a hostile world. But you know what? Peter here shows it's important to pray that God would give us what we need to you know, combat this. But Jesus also tells us something very important about the hostile people who are coming against us. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 44. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. 
You see, we shouldn't just be praying that God would help us against the hostile people. We should also be praying for the hostile people themselves, that we love the people, even that they're hostile to us, even when they're persecuting us, even when they're doing these things against us. Love them like Jesus loved them and ask God to truly bless them and work in them, not prayers of, Lord, strike them down right now. How dare they do this to me? That's not the prayers that Jesus is talking about. He's saying, love them, pray for them, pray that God would move in them, pray that God would change their hearts. This is something that's so important when people come against us. That's not usually the response we want to have. It's like, Lord, help me. Lord, do something to protect me, which are good prayers. But let's not forget, Lord, let's work in that person's life. Obviously, they got issues. They got issues with you. They're angry with you for whatever reason. And I want to see them come to know you. And I want to see their life transpired, Lord. So work in them. I'm sure all of us have been guilty of responding to hostile people in an improper way. In an ungodly way, not the example that we see here from Peter and John, where we respond by showing them hostility ourselves, by showing them anger, by showing them a lack of love. How dare you speak that to me? I'll just come right back at you with the same thing. Or we respond by shying away from the truths about Jesus to avoid hostility. Well, if I shut up and I don't speak about these things anymore, then then they won't have an issue with me, so I'll just stop speaking about Jesus and the word of God. Or we respond by doing what these hostile people say instead of doing what God says. But that's not the response we should have. We need to respond the way that Peter and John respond. And this is a great, great example for us. These three wonderful things that we see. First, we should respond by boldly proclaiming the truth about Jesus in the Bible. And remember, that boldness isn't something that comes from you. You muster it up. I'm just going to be bold today. No, that boldness is supernatural. It's something that the Spirit of God gives to you. Pray for that. Second, we should respond by listening to and doing what God says, not what this world says. And third, respond by praying for the hostile people coming against us and pray that God would enable us and give us what we need as we face the hostility this world gives. And I want to just put this into practice this morning. I want to take some time as a, a body of believers to do this, just to pray. Pray for boldness. Pray that God would give us what we need. Because as I already mentioned, we are seeing in our culture a rapid shift away from God's truth, away from God's word, away from Jesus. And the hostility is growing and growing. And I think I see with, within the body of Christ a, a fear and, and a willingness to compromise and steer clear of things that might offend because we're more concerned about offending the world than offending God. And so let's pray that God would give us boldness. Let's pray that God would help us because the reality is at work, in our families, with our neighbors, at school, there's people who are hostile to you because you believe in Jesus, because ultimately they're hostile to him and they're hostile to the truth of his word. And we encounter them on a daily basis and we need boldness to shine for Christ. He tells us that we're supposed to be his ambassadors. We're the light of the world. We're the salt of the earth. That's what we're supposed to be. The question is, are we really doing that? And so we need his boldness to do that. We need his boldness to help us to stand firm for these truths in a culture that desperately doesn't want us to. We need people like what Peter and John did so we can impact this culture. So I just want to take a few moments to do that. I'm going to leave it open for anyone who would like to pray for that boldness from the Lord, uh, and then I'm going to close this in prayer. So let's just, just like they did, as they got together, they recognized there was an attack against them, and they prayed to Jesus to help them. And let's just close doing that this morning.